Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Julie, we live in a remarkable age, don't we? We certainly do. We certainly do. We have um, airplanes. True. Submarines. Mm-hmm. We have uh, satellites in orbit. And we have these amazing little devices that we wear on our person at all times that often feel like uh, an extension of ourselves. And we turn to them when we need to connect with somebody, mm-hmm. when we need to take a photograph mm-hmm. of something happening in our daily life, if we need to fact check something, uh, be it, you know, who starred in uh, Beastmaster or I wonder what the name of this friend of a friend is. You, what do you do? You go on Facebook and you look for it. Or you just need like simple, um, you know, conversions of figures or simple mathematics. What do you do? You go fleeing to your, your smart device. My Rolodex. Your, oh, your Rolodex. Oh, oh, yes, yes, yes. Well, it is, the, it is the, it's the Rolodex as well. It, it's <laughs> all those things rolled up into one and this little, uh, this little electronic organ that lives in our pocket. I know. And the funny thing about that is that this question I'm about to pose would be ridiculous 10 years ago. Okay. But now I think it matters. Have you ever tried to recall an actual phone number stored in your cell phone? I'm talking about a phone number of a close friend or a relative and you've come up just with snake eyes. Yes. But, and sadly it was try, I, there were times, not recently, but like in the first two or three years, maybe, Mm -hmm. um, I do remember having that problem where I need to list my wife's number on something or call her from uh, from uh, another phone. And I, we weren't married at the time, but still, she was the person I was talking to the most on the phone, and I didn't have her number memorized yet. So I had to like make a conscious decision. Okay, this is this is the one number. This is the the only one, but this is the one number <laughs> I need to commit to memory besides my own. See, this is a fine example of us humans outsourcing memory to metal and plastic. Mm-hmm. And it's something that we've been doing for a long time. But now I think it's very obvious because, as you say, this, these devices are things that we rely on all the time. Yeah, and not just the devices, of course, but just the Internet itself. Mm-hmm. I mean, as as writers, we've certainly seen this trend um, over the years where it's, I'm forgetting how to spell things because the spell check is so ubiquitous. It's everywhere. It's, and it, you know, and, and if it's not in the, the program that I'm using, then it's, then it's, I, it halts me. It brings me to a stop. I can't finish the sentence because I suddenly have all these doubts about the things that I've written. So like sometimes I find myself in a form intentionally misspelling a word. <laughs> in order to make sure yeah. that the word I just spelled was actually correct and not, uh, and, and not, you know, it wasn't a situation where the, the spell check was somehow turned off or malfunctioning. And that's such a good example of a microcosm of how you are taking memory and just shuttling off to someone else or something. And I think a good macrocosm of this would be something like the cloud, which we are now all beginning to back up to. Right. Right. Uh, your your photos, your your basic information on your phone, uh, important documents. Uh, I I still occasionally run across old floppy disks that I that with labels on them. Yeah. Where I had like worked on a short story or part of a novel or something, you know, 
15 years ago. And at the time, I was like, all right, this this is important. I need to put this on the zip file, and I'm going to store this in a different location. It goes in my safe. It goes in the safe or something. And now it's becoming increasingly, uh, you know, just seems silly because it's out there in the cloud. It's it's stored uh, safely in, you know, unknown uh, storage uh, uh, facilities, uh, electronic storage facilities uh, around the world. Well, see, and I think this all points to this idea that we are now at the age of Watson. And when I'm talking about Watson, I am talking about Jeopardy, of course, because oh. this used to be the game show in which humans would roll out their memory prowess mm-hmm. and show everybody how awesome we were in that department. But along came, of course, an artificial machine and and trumped Ken Jennings, of course. This is the the, the uh, Jeopardy champ. Right. And, and map enthusiast. Map enthusiast, yes. And showed us how fallible our memories really are and how we really do rely on outsourcing it. And if you're like me, you, you sit there thinking about all this outsourcing of memory. Mm-hmm. And you, you kind of shame yourself a little bit because you think, well, you know, maybe I should be making an effort to memorize these facts or those or retain this information. But then on the other hand, it makes a, a certain amount of economic sense, right? I mean, our minds are in this universe having to navigate this world of, of uh, physical objects and, and uh, you know, non-physical ideas, uh, abstract numbers, and it makes sense that like a slime mold, we would figure out the shortest path <laughs> yeah. through the maze. And I like this idea of couching it in slime mold because if you think about memory, it kind of does ha- have its place in emergence, right? And this mm-hmm. idea of all of us coming together as one organism and making life work for us. And uh. in this case, memory. So this is actually called transactive memory. And it has been around since the dawn of man. And yeah. woman, right? Yeah, because, I mean, if you are thinking about early man trying to start a fire or trying to create a stew, well, it's very uh, possible that several people know the steps in order to create this fire or to create this this meal. Yes. And so everybody is relying on each other to try to figure out how to bring all of this to fruition, right? Yeah. So, you know... Think about the most complex stew in the world, and maybe it has 50 steps to it. Well, those 50 steps are distributed among many people who don't have a writing utensil or the Internet at their disposal to try to figure out how to do something. And this is, uh, it's important to note, this is before the age of, of specialization really takes off uh, in, in a larger sense in the civilization. You know, yeah. The idea that once you have a surplus of food, you don't have to hunt all the time, and certain individuals can devote themselves to certain uh, specialized tasks. But as, we're, but as we're discussing here, even before that, there's a certain amount of specialization that ends up taking place because we are externalizing uh, the necessary information. We're essentially outsourcing it to other members of our community. Now, Harvard psychologist Daniel Wigner, Ralph Eber, and Paula Raymond began to study transactive memory in earnest in the 80s. And they found, this is interesting in, in terms of specialization, mm-hmm. that spouses often divide up memory tasks. Yes, and this is really the most, um, this, this is the, the, the example of this. It's really, I think, the easiest for most of us to understand um, because they also applied it not only to spouses but also to, like, close friends or, uh, or, or people that you're working with on a mm-hmm. regular basis. So, for instance, some of the stuff we're talking about here, I recognize in our work process, you know, um, because it, it comes down to, to this, all right? You uh, imagine your you and your coworker, you and your spouse. There's certain information you need to, uh, easy access to. Now, at a at a very economic level, think about it. Does it make sense for you both to have that? No. You know, if you need one bottle of water on a hike, would you both carry a bottle of water? No. 
one person would carry the bottle of the wa- of water, and the other person would say, carry the cooler of sandwiches. And with information, with memory, it often ends up the same way. And we end up at a, like a, at a subconscious level. We're doing this. You, you're not, you know, you're not actively thinking. Well, my wife, uh, she's keeping track of, uh, you know, of, of uh, you know, when we have to go out of town uh, this weekend, or what time we need to leave, or whatever. So I'll just let her handle that. Not because I would choose to forget that. I would yeah. rather fill my brain with other things. No, we we end up doing this at a, at a subconscious level. Just uh, again, like that slime mold reaching out through the maze to find the shortest uh, way out. I know. I was thinking about it in my own relationship with my spouse, and I thought, well, he is the person who keeps all the dates in his head, mm-hmm. as well as like details about my personal family history, as well as his, because he's kind of he's the big memory there. Mm-hmm. But I'm the person who does all the technology stuff. I remember all the passwords. I remember all the steps to switch between streaming and DVD and um, DVR and all the different things that have to do with our internet media consumption. And we've never talked about it and said, hey, this is how we're going to parse out our life together. But that's just sort of how it has fallen to us. So I think that's very interesting that we would shuttle off certain things with people and go to them and say, OK, how do you do this? Now, of course, it's, it's important to mention in all this that that human memory is is always flawed. I mean, we've talked about this before. Mm-hmm. Our memory of things that happen to us is flawed. Every time we take that memory out of the drawer, we alter it in some way, shape, or form. And when it comes to various factoids and, and specific details, uh, that is another area where we just have built-in limitations. But this is where having a brain mate <laughs> comes right, into play, right. uh, be it a spouse or just you know a long-term uh, you know coworker or friend. There was a study we we're looking at here from uh, Celia B. Harris at all uh, titled "Collaborative Remembering: When Can Remembering with Others Be Beneficial?" And in this uh, particular study, uh, the researchers looked at older couples who'd been together for decades. Mm-hmm. Uh, they separated them, questioned them individually about events years and years ago, and uh, they stumbled on you know, details about past events. Uh, when they, but when they questioned them together, they were able to to retrieve even more information. And uh, they they observed that they, the individuals were engaging in something called cross queuing, so yeah. they're tossing these clues back and forth until they they trigger enough memories in each other to recall the the total event. So it's like this collective uh, memorization of a past event. But they have to be together to bring it out. It's like the uh, the Wonder Twins powers activate. That's so funny. I'm sure everybody has had that experience before mm-hmm. with someone. Now, another example of creating a little hold for our memory is a very interesting one to me. And it has to do with photographs. Because to me, this is a very subconscious thing. You take a photograph, right? And you think, ah, I'm, I'm on vacation. I've had this wonderful moment. And I'm remembering all of this. I'm soaking it in. Mm-hmm. But that may not be the case. We're, of course, talking about the photo-taking impairment effect. And uh, I think we've all encountered people at events, strangers generally, who are taking photographs. And we've... we've uh, We've met this with varying degrees of irritation or resentment. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, you're, say you're at the Grand Canyon and you're like, oh, I'm just, uh, I just want to take this in. I just yeah. want to experience it. And then there's, here's somebody that is, uh, you know, painstakingly setting up a camera to take a photograph of it. And at times you can be a little judgy. You can think like, oh, well, look at me. I'm living in the moment of this experience. I'm experiencing it. A photograph can't even capture what I'm seeing now. And you're looking at it through a camera. Or, uh, growing up, I certainly remember seeing, uh, parents obsessed with video cameras where mm-hmm. it seems like they're observing their their entire the entire childhood of their offspring 
through the lens of the video camera. Um, also, and of course, concerts are even worse now. I was, I was at a concert about a year ago, uh, like a heavy metal concert for uh, this band called uh, Meshuggah. And Meshuggah's been around for a while, so you saw this. Is this different from Meshuggah? I think, I think there's some relation. It's to the Yiddish, yeah. Okay. But, uh, yeah, they're from Scandinavia. But, uh, but well, they've that been around. Yeah. <laughs> they've been around for a while. And, and so their, their fan base, you know, ranges from, you know, uh, people, I'm, I'm probably around the middle of the, 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 the age, uh, you know, brackets. Okay. For the fans. So me and a friend of mine were, were watching the show, but we couldn't help but notice some of the younger fans who were basically experiencing the live music through their uh, their iPhones as they videotaped it, right? And and we you know we were just like this is the most unmetal thing we've ever seen in our <laughs> lives. You know you should be experiencing hell. So it's it's easy to bring this this attitude into it. But then you talk to somebody for whom photography is their passion, mm-hmm. is their is you know even their you know their career, and you know you 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 have to admit that this is the way that they. Take the beauty in their life and re- and remember it, you know. Well, in those cases, and we'll talk in a second about this study that um, sort of I think vindicates your feelings about being at the Grand Canyon and someone uh, looking at it through a lens as opposed to experiencing it. Um, in some ways, I think the photographer might be able to have a the professional photographer might have a better sense of those events because they go through those images and they do a lot of editing. Afterward, as opposed to someone who's just happening happens to take a picture of that and they put it on Instagram at that moment. Well, there's also something to be said. Maybe I'm being judgy, but taking a bad picture of something and taking a good picture. For instance, when I go to the aquarium and I see somebody take a flash, a direct flash image of something in an aquarium tank, mm-hmm. like they're not going to get a good picture. Like, like it's not like you're going to go home and be and and you're going to look at the image that you took and it's just going to you know time travel you back to when you you were staring at that octopus no you took a really bad photo of something that was far more impressive in real life whereas you know there are if someone actually knows what they're doing with the camera there and with the, and especially if the appropriate editing is applied you can create a more beautiful vision of what you actually saw i think that you should create a pamphlet <laughs> to give out at these various places like the aquarium just to do your duty here as a little PSA. I have thought before that I almost want to see a sign that says professional uh, f- photographers only. Um, I mean, really, that's kind of when there's no photography allowed, that's basically what the ar- arrangement is. Like if you want to photograph these works of art, for instance, right. or fish, then you need to know what you're doing and you need to get special permission to do it. You don't want a giant thumb in yeah. front of a world-class work. Oh, well, you know, that's the other thing. Like I, when I go to an art museum, and uh, and I, I've been accused of being a snob about about going to art museums before, about like not wanting to hear a bunch of people talk, et cetera. And I, and I want to cl- clarify that I do think it's okay to talk in a museum. But when I'm trying to look at works of art and people are busy getting their photograph made in front of it, like that just drives me crazy. Like, like that, the art, the art is the art. We aren't, you know, we should be here to appreciate the art, not to say, this is great. I love this painting. It'd be a little better for my memory, though, if I had a picture of me with it making the victory sign with my fingers. All right. Remind me never to attend the aquarium <laughs> or a museum with you. Because I do like to photobomb every once in a while. So, just saying. All right, what we're talking about here is Fairfield University psychologist Linda Hankel, who gave test participants a digital camera and an itinerary of objects to view at a museum on campus there. Yeah, they said, go to the museum, look at these particular exhibits. Mm -hmm. And some of them were told, all right, take photographs of the whole thing. You know, this particular painting, whatever. Just get, get a good picture of this painting for me. Other people were told... 
Get some details. Get the details of this pain. They were asked specifically to zoom in on the detail. Yeah. Okay, and that's really important. We'll talk, and other we'll people were that. just sent to look at stuff. Exactly. Yeah. Right, right. And not take any photographs whatsoever. So the next day she showed them pictures of the names of the objects they had seen. Or excuse me, that she had shown them pictures or the names of the objects they had seen, and some they hadn't seen at all. And she asked details about the ones they remembered. Now, test participants recognized fewer objects they'd photographed whole, right, mm-hmm. than those that they observed on their museum tour. And they were much less accurate in recalling visual details of museum objects they'd photographed whole compared with those they'd only observed, unless they zoomed in with their camera. So just the act of taking the picture allowed them to use transactive memory, essentially saying, I don't need to remember this. This is getting documented, Mm -hmm. so I don't have to crowd my brain with this. Unless, again, they did the whole Zoom function, which changed uh, their their mindset, really. It changed their cognitive functioning at that moment because they had to hone in and really observe at that moment. So you see how subconsciously we're doing this with photograph, and you have to wonder, well, what about the Internet? What is that doing to the way that we... Uh, shuttle off memory. Yeah, that's essentially the big point we're getting to here, especially concerning uh, transactive memory. Again, that idea that we're uh, we're saying, all right, well, Judy knows how to make uh, this portion of the stew, so I'm going to, uh, and this is all subconscious, I'm going to forget how to do that because I know that someone else yeah. in my group is already specializing in that. That is how we end up treating the Internet. That's how we treat the cloud, not as a reference book that we have at our disposal, but as a person, mm-hmm. as a, as if this is a member of our community who just happens to say, remember all the Fahrenheit Celsius conversion tables, right. who who happens to remember who was in every movie ever, who happens to remember, uh, you know, even little stuff like what days do certain holidays fall on this year? I mean, all the all of that information. They are this uber friend, this friend made out of uh, out of the internet, and uh, and we treat that we treat the cloud as if it is this person, at least in our mind. Yeah, and so the question becomes, how does this transactive memory writ large affect our brain? And I'm sure everybody uh, is familiar with that by now famous 2011 study about how Google has affected our memory and has changed it in a sense. Um, The paper, a 2011 paper called Google Effects on Memory, Cognitive Consequences of Having Information at Our Fingertips, details research carried out in four memory studies. And it was found, in just a general overview, it was found that if participants thought that the information they were presented with was being backed up, they were less likely to remember it. In addition, they had this uh, this one experiment involving difficult trivia questions, and participants were more likely to subsequently quickly react to words like Google and Yahoo. It was 2011. <laughs> uh, then the non-computer-related Nike and YoPlay. So the idea is that when we are asked about things we don't know, our first instinct now is to think about finding the information online. And I'm sure everybody's experienced that too. I know that, you know, at least 10 times a day, I'll be thinking about something. And I, it, and it's very, actually very, um, disturbing to my process if I'm trying to get something done in one large chunk because my brain will, will sort of say, okay, go stop what you're doing right now and go look that up. Yeah. And it'll be silly stuff too. Like I'll be researching something to do with, say, I don't know, quantum physics, and then I'll suddenly need to know if a Vagoda is still alive, or I want, or, or the other day it was this. Uh, I suddenly had to know what Mitch McConnell looked like when he was younger, 
And incidentally, I could find no evidence of what he looked like when he was younger. Like the, the yeah. earliest image I found of Mitch McConnell, he was, uh, he already looked like he was in his fifties. So, um, if anyone out there can, can cue me into what he looked like, it's stupid. It makes no sense. But for some reason, my mind has to know what he looked like when he was a younger man for no reason. Like I'm not obsessed with Mitch McConnell, uh, in any way, shape or form in a negative or a positive way. No, I know. Way. And it's funny. I was looking at a paper on mirror neurons and all of a sudden I had the urge or this thing bubble up in my brain of was Barbarella supposed to be a scientist? <laughs> and I was like, no, don't stop what you're doing right now to look that up. Please don't. But then you have to. You have to run off, and uh, and hopefully yeah. you'll find an answer. I'll get and there eventually. And you won't spend you know, 15, 30 minutes just going down the rabbit hole. Well, you know how it is that when we talked about memory loop and like closing it, mm-hmm. you know that, that that is going to continually pop up for me until I go and Google what Barbarella's profession was. Yeah, I mean, I've... I've seen the movie several times and I can't remember offhand. So I think she was. So we'll listeners, let us know. Barbarella, what was her occupation? Mitch McConnell, what did he look like when he was a teenager? All right, uh, we should probably take a quick break. Yes. And when we get back, we are going to talk about outsourcing your identity. All right, we're back. What is your favorite scene in Barbarella? Oh well, there's so there's so much. I mean, the the 13 year old boy in me still likes the uh, the opening credits when she's floating around. Yeah. But then there's the weird stuff with the dolls attacking mm-hmm. and the ice. There's the, the the queen with the horn coming out of her head. The leather people, the angel dude, the uh, the orgasm machine. I mean, it's just nonstop. I know, crazy. Yeah, I I think it's the dolls with the razor sharp teeth. Yes, I think that might be my favorite. But you're right, it's hard to pick. All right. Um, in the past, we have talked about something called the Panopticon, and we talked about how when it comes to data data tracking, um, we have willingly handed ourselves over to the Panopticon, that, that eye in the corporate sky that tags every move we make on the Internet. That's right. I mean, cookies. Signaling where we've been, uh, you know, you're logging into uh, into Facebook to view various accounts, various uh, news organizations, etc. So companies like Facebook end up having this rather remarkable picture of who and what you are, just based on little individual bits about your interest. Because not only do they know, well, he or she is interested in this, then they know, well, if he or she is interested in this, then they likely line up with certain demographics uh, surrounding that fan base. I mean, it gets very analytical, but in a sense, Facebook ends up knowing you better than you know yourself. Yeah, and we'll get to some of those uh, analytics and how robust they are and how they can predict what you're going to do and who you may be about. But first, I wanted to share this tidbit from Slate Magazine. Uh, it's an article by Ed Finn, and he says, These days, when a computer crunches the numbers and tells you this is who you are, it's hard to contradict because there's more data about you in the machine than there is in your head. Algorithms are most effective at curating the information that's hardest for us to hold in our heads, how long we talk to mom or what day of the week we splurge on an extra cookie. Hmm. And I thought, yeah, that that is right. Um, there's a you kind of a data readout of yourself. It doesn't mean that's you necessarily, but it might give you a clearer picture of the ways that you behave. Yeah, at least the way that you're manifesting, I guess. Now, one of the most extreme examples of the predictive power of analytics, I think, is a, a Facebook example, and it's from a user named Matt who detailed on BuzzFeed how Facebook sorted out his sexual identity before anyone else did. Right. He uh, he, he ended up uh, seeing an ad for an, for, a, for an article, and it was about coming out as gay. 
Yes. Yeah, it was like how to come out as gay or something to that effect. Like, so you've decided to come out. And here are the events that led up to that. Because he was mortified by this because he thought, what is going on? Is Facebook looking at my text messages on my iPhone? Because the night before mm-hmm. he had received that advertisement, he had texted a friend for some advice on how to come out to his parents. Yeah, because if anyone's not aware, like this is still, this is a huge deal in, in, in an individual's life when they, when they come out, uh, even just, uh, you know, partially. Uh, to to uh, people in their surroundings about their sexual identity. Right. This is very sensitive information, mm-hmm. and he wanted to try to get to the uh, the end of this and figure out how Facebook served him up such a an on target advertisement. Now it seems like it's probably just coincidence, but he went through all of his activity on Facebook, and everything that he had ever liked or identified with had nothing to do with being gay, and the only thing that might have given Facebook a clue is that he made a comment on a friend's link um, and that the friend's link was Ohio Senator Rob Portman announces support for marriage equality. And his comment was just saying that nothing is cut and dried. That's all. Hmm. And most likely those algorithms, again, are pretty robust enough to have delivered him an advertisement about sexuality and coming out. So, I mean, for some people, obviously, it's going to raise questions about, you know, why he had just texted the night before and then received the mm-hmm. advertisement. But most likely, again, this just had to do on that that one comment that he made. Because we're putting so much of ourselves out there uh, into the cloud that, uh, you know, we're building this kind of reflection of, of who and what we are. Yeah. There's a there's a fabulous episode of uh, Charlie Brooker's uh, Black Mirror that uh, that that utilizes this, where an individual dies, passes away, and that individual happened to be a heavy social media user. And this takes place in a fictional near future. Mm-hmm. Uh, but after this uh, happens, there's a service that allows uh, th- that allows you to communicate with sort of a, a reassembly of that persona based on the information that they have placed online. So huh. essentially, using the alg- the algorithmic understanding of a departed loved one to rebuild them in the digital world. Which we've talked about before. I just wonder if you tried to create your own image of yourself algorithmically, how, and then sort of communicate with that person or that being or that information, how close would that be to who you feel you actually are? Yeah. Well, there, it seems like you, you get into that whole issue about is there a single unified me? You know, because I'm different. I'm a different person inside. I'm a different person with different people. We have, Mentioned this before, but it probably bears mentioning again that web surfing habits may be able to predict depression. Oh, yes. Now, this is a 2012 study from Missouri University of Science and Technology. We're talking about a depression screening questionnaire that was administered to 216 students. 30% um, were identified as having perhaps depression. And what they did is they gained access to that 30% of their um, Internet usage, of course, with their permission. And what they found is that depressed students tended to email an instant message more frequently and were more likely to download videos or songs and play more online games than those who weren't depressed. Mm-hmm. Of course, I kind of take issue with that because sometimes I think it's a matter of how much time you have on your hands. And we are talking about students. Yeah, yeah, it's true. And, and, you know, it's also worth saying, and it's also which which comes first, right? Mm-hmm. Because there are situations where if one has a lot of free time on their hands, maybe they're a little more prone to depression. Or maybe if something happens in one's life that is, you know, that might lead to depression, it may also lead to uh, a little more extra time. So you lose your job. 
So, I mean, right. it's hard to really to track it and pin it down. To you know? suss that out. And then what do you make of people who are life bloggers, right? People who oh, yes. are doing this on purpose. They're taking as much data as they can and trying to make a story of themselves about it intentionally, right? And we're talking about like people who produce annual reports of their activity oh, yes. as obsessively logged throughout the year, you know? Which, which again, kind of comes back to that idea of people with photographic memories as, as ultimately suffering from a severe self-obsession. And that's where all of this comes from. This is a, a kind of the externalization of that using uh, you know, various, uh, you know, either record-keeping devices or outright social media devices to, to just keep very precise records of what's going on uh, and externalizing, you know, all of their memory. Well, and that's where this idea of the future of outsourcing memory comes into play. Because if just even 10 years ago, we weren't that dependent on our, our smart devices, our smartphones, mm-hmm. what is the next 10 years going to look like when you have something like Google Glass amassing data in an intentional way, right? I mean, we're talking about video, we're talking about photographs, um, and we're talking about uploading all of that to the cloud. Yeah, Um you know, I mean, the, because these photographs we take, especially, I mean, they're, they're, they mean a lot to us. Uh, you know, we're taking pictures of our children. We're taking pictures of the places we go. And like some of these end up being like the last photographs of people before they die. You know, these are, mm-hmm. th- these are uh, essential things. And then for that to, to say suddenly vanish because your, uh, you know, your phone was lost or your account was hacked, like that could be heartbreaking. Right. So, you know, you have things like memoir, which is an app that will sync and store photos from your phone and your computer in the cloud, which makes sense, right? Because you have all this stuff. What do you do with it? And it organizes it all by date and then pulls in data. This is the interesting thing from social networks like Facebook, Instagram and Foursquare to provide more social context. So the idea here that the co-founder Lee Hoffman is trying to hone in on is that he can create, they can create Something like a memory, a real memory, because we know a memory isn't just like a one thing. We know it's connected to all sorts of stuff, probably things that we can't even, you know, quantify quite yet. But we know that a memory has to do with smell and taste and what you see at the time and what you feel at the time. It's right. just pegged to all these different associations. Yes. And it's and, and you can forget it and you can also you alter it every time you, you look at it and it can be flawed for a number of reasons. But what we're talking about here is the the, the recording of, say, you know, an actual image of what happened or an actual audio of what happened or a GPS tag of exactly where you were at a given yes. time. So memory, in a sense, becomes more more exact. And oddly enough, this factors into another episode of Black Mirror, uh, The Entire <laughs> History of You, which came out in uh, 2011. Uh, and Black Mirror, by the way, excellent series, but only for our uh, mature uh, audience members out there because it deals with some 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 pretty dark, bleak uh, uh, subject matter. In this particular uh, episode, the entire history of you, all of the individuals in it, at least those who can afford it, um, have this thing called a um, a grain uh, uh, implanted. Mm-hmm. It's like a brain implant, and it basically takes anything they see is recorded, like all just a videotape of their entire life is seen through their eyes is recorded, and then can be uh, recalled later. Can be inspected, say at the airport. Before you board a plane, they'll want to see your, you know, your, your flash through your last 48 hours to make sure you're not up to any, any, you know, mischief. Mm-hmm. And another, uh, like, and basically the whole episode explores some of the various complications, uh, and traumas that can occur when you have that kind of recall at your disposal. You know, that's really interesting because I was just thinking about this other device. It's called Memetto and it's a wearable camera and it takes, uh, 
five megapixel pictures every 30 seconds. Yeah, it's like that kind of thing. Yeah. In 2011, it was science fiction, uh, near future science fiction, but now we're already seeing the stuff roll out. Yeah, and then you have something called Life Logger, which is actually another device that will document your life for you, sort it, upload it, contextualize it. And I was thinking about this movie called Until the End of the World. I think it came out in the 80s, but I can't remember. Mm-hmm. Um, but in it, the reason I bring it up is because it's this post-apocalyptic world and people have access to their memories just like a film on these devices, which kind of look like iPads now um, or, or mini air iPads. Uh, but anyway, they become completely obsessed and hamstrung in their efforts to even kind of move forward in this life because they just keep going over this information obsessively of how their lives used to be. Yeah, I mean, it instantly brings to mind, you know, very, very Buddhist ideas of, uh, of peace, you know, mm-hmm. and about how if you were, if you were shackled to the past or shackled to the future, then you're not really experiencing any amount of freedom. You know, you're not living in the, in the moment at all. And it's, it's important that we forget things. You know, it's easy, yeah. it's easy to, to discount that and, you know, say, oh, well, I wish I remembered this or I wish I remembered that. And I was just thinking, you know, we were talking about photographs. So like imagine a time not too long ago where you had a loved one die and, and it, you know, if you didn't have access to, you know, paintings or drawings or whatever, mm-hmm. you could easily forget that person's face in a matter of time. You know, it would, it, you would, or at least you would, you reach that point where you would doubt your own memory of their face. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's kind of powerful to think about. But on the other hand, we need to be able to forget things. Like painful memories need to dull over time. Like time doesn't heal all wounds, but it does heal some wounds, and we need those wounds to heal. Well, if you have a memory that's particularly special to you, the ability to dwell upon it and obsess on it, does it become trite then? Does yeah. it become so well-known and, and so well-trod territory that it becomes kind of dull to you? Yeah, potentially. Yeah. yeah. All right, so the next thing we're going to talk about before we wrap things up here about outsourcing memory is something called a neuroprosthesis. And... I kind of want one of these. It's not available for humans yet, but I see advantages here. There's a team at Wake Forest University headed up by Sam Deadweiler. And uh, by the way, funded this research was funded by DARPA. And they created this neuroprosthesis that promotes task-specific neural firing. So what they're talking about is, of course, rhesus uh, macaques, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And which is a huge step, by the way, that they're using these primates as opposed to rats, which they've doing they've been doing for years. Um, but they take an array of electrodes and they implant them into the hippocampus mm-hmm. of the monkeys, and they're able to both record neural activity and stimulate it. And then using a mathematical model called MIMO, M-I-M-O, the researchers determined the pattern of activity that was seen when each animal correctly performed each type of trial which is called a strong code, and then when they failed, which is called a weak code. Now, the, the the end all being of this thing is that they were able to go in and manipulate the strong code when they were going back to do this specific task and then bolster the, the brain's memory, the response of what to do next. That is the correct thing to do next. Oh, wow. That is crazy. It's essentially an electronic brain enhancer. Yes. And doesn't that kind of, I mean, for certain tasks, that seems like it might be kind of lovely, right? Yeah. I mean, assuming you can turn it off, turn it on, but then some people might say, well, why would you ever turn it off? And and to what extent does it become like, uh, 
you know, the, the issue of, say, uh, Adderall prescriptions in, uh, in, in school, you know? You might become addicted. Like, you, you were like, addicted. I don't know how to think without this thing. Exactly. Or I think I've sent you the, uh, the old uh, look around you bit about uh, electronic brain enhancers, EV. So they show <laughs> yeah. somebody with that's addicted to electronic brain enhancers, and they're just, like, sweating in a room, and they have, like, several of these little uh, electrodes attached to their, their head. But, yeah, but w- w- you get into issues of, like, is it fair that some people have have uh, have these things and some people don't and then are some people too dependent upon them uh it gets our cybernetic future is is weird well does that take away the sense of free will too right because narrative is something we shape and we decide how we're going to report the facts and mm-hmm. and think about things and if it's th- if there are a set of algorithms doing that for us maybe then we don't really have the free will we think we have yeah, that's a that's a good uh, good point. And another thing about algorithms uh, to keep in mind too, to go back to transactive memory for a second. Transactive memory works. It works. We've been using it for a while. Uh, again, externalizing our memory and the people around us. And again, we're treating the internet, the cloud, more like a person. We're using transactive memory when we engage with the cloud. But transactive memory works best when you have a sense of how your partner's mind works. How your how right. your coworkers' mind work, how your your mates' uh, mind works, etc. Um, with the internet, though, who knows the mind of the internet? I mean, the, the the internet is 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 not a person. It's this yeah. this vast uh, uh, sea of knowledge, and it's ruled over by algorithms, by media companies, by uh, search terms, and, and and what kind of results they're gonna they're gonna get you. Uh, you know, again, what kind of uh, what kind of mathematical equation is deciding what information you see, what information is hidden from you. So that's the quote-unquote person that you're, that you're uh, externalizing your memory in. That's interesting to look at it as a partnership. And if you don't know what the other side of that is, then how can you really offshore that memory in a way that makes you feel like, okay about it. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't go so far as to say that we are outsourcing our memory to this dark, unknowable God, but it's at least a gray, unknowable God. It's all part of the panopticon. Yeah, it is. I have to say yeah. it that way, contractually. Okay. Yeah. So it's an eye-opening topic. Uh, just researching it made me really think about some of the, the, the ways that I approach uh, memory in my in my private life, in my, my home life, uh, even in, in, in my work life here. Like, I, I can definitely see myself outsourcing some memory tasks to you. Hopefully not too many of them. But I, I know there are things, for instance, someone will ask me about an episode we've done. And they'll be like, oh, you did that episode on such and such. And I'll say, and I'll either say or think, well, I don't really recall that one all that much because I think that the part you're asking about was a portion of the podcast that Julie really had more of a handle on. So, like, on some level, I was saying, I don't need to know that because Julie's going to know that. Right, and vice versa. And I think it just kind of brings home this idea that no man is an island unto himself, right? Right, as romantic as that idea is. I mean, especially if, you know, if you're a writer, you're an artist, or you're a, you know, a scientist working on your own in the dark, we like to think that we're this, that we're this brain, this single brain in the universe, but it's not that simple. We're a brain in a body, and that brain, and that that embodied brain is sharing a communal space with other uh, embodied brains. That's right, or one big oozy organism, one big slime mold trying to make its way through the maze of life. That sounds like a good movie pitch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, so there you have it. Uh, I'm sure everyone has some interesting feedback on this particular topic, and we would love to hear from you about it. Is uh, how, how do you feel, feel that your memory has changed? 
uh, over the course of the past uh, few decades. If you're old enough to actually, um, you know, have, have, you know, risen up on this, this tide of internet and got to experience it. And then many of you were born straight into it. And, and maybe, uh, you have some feedback on it as well. Uh, what do you think about this outsourcing of memory and how do you think it's going to affect us in the future? You can find us a number of different ways. Of course, as usual, just go to stufftoblowyourmind.com. That is our home base. That's the mothership. You'll find all the podcast episodes there, the blog posts, the videos, as well as links out to our social media accounts like Twitter, Facebook, and Tumblr. And if you want to watch uh, the video specifically and you want to just really focus on that aspect of what we do, go to YouTube, go to Mind Stuff Show, hit that follow button, and then you'll be able to be right there on top of everything we put out. Yeah, that Mind Stuff Show, it shows us talking like in our human forms. Yes. And uh, sometimes we, we talk about the topics that we already cover, and sometimes we, we go a little bit off script and, and go into other bits of stuff. So. Yeah, and if you've uh, you've checked out the, the YouTube in the past, uh, and you're like, I don't really like what they're doing, etc., check it out in the future, because we have a whole bunch of new ideas that are coming out. We've been, we've been learning how this video thing works uh, as we go, and uh, I think we have some truly exciting content. And we have future. a lot of fully clothed naked men. That we're featuring. Okay. Yeah. Good, good. You can always send us your thoughts by emailing us at blowthemind at discovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 